Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. My guest today is Joe Kinsella, founder and CTO of Cloud Health Technologies, which was acquired by VMware in October of 2018. Joe, welcome to the show. Great, great to be here, Carol, and great to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you too. So I, I just have to say, um, in all the years I've been doing this, you 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 rank in among the top of my favorite founders of tech firms um, in many many ways, and um, I think that um, even though you're uh, no longer leading a company, I really want to talk to you a lot about Cloud Health and how you built it and how it came to fruition. Um, tell me a little bit about how the idea behind cloud health technologies came to you? Yeah, I don't think it was much of an accident, Carol. I think um, you look at my career and I spent a lot of time in the infrastructure management market. And so I would say I was a bit of an expert in infrastructure mm-hmm. management. And then I, I I did have the early light bulb moment of realizing that the cloud computing and specifically the public cloud was going to be a you know big transformation in industry. Mm-hmm. And so so I spent a fair amount of time on cloud computing and became something of an expert in that space. So I really, the intersection of those two spaces of infrastructure management and cloud computing is mm-hmm. really what cloud health technologies was all about. Mm-hmm. So I, I had this idea that somewhere at that intersection, there was a business for me to build. And that really was the, the genesis of cloud health. And then, you know, I set off on the journey that eventually led to uh, to founding the company. Mm-hmm. Um. What's the biggest problem that Cloud Health solved or solves, you know, under under the under the auspices of you know Cloud Health by VMware now? Yeah, I think um, the thing we became best known for mm-hmm. is uh, so many companies just you know when jumped into the public cloud and they started putting infrastructure there and building applications and doing everything in the cloud. And there was always this awkward moment that would happen with every single company where suddenly they realized how expensive. The public cloud actually was mm-hmm. so what what cloud health did better than anyone for its for its era and still today does better than anyone is um, really help customers get control of the costs of their cloud and then mm-hmm. drive efficiency in um, their mm-hmm. consumption of the cloud so mm-hmm. so it's uh, you know I think that's probably what we're best known for there's many other things we did over the years mm-hmm. but I think almost every customer journey starts with uh, cost management. Right. So, but, but these are people that might've been working with AWS or Azure or, you know, Oracle's cloud or any of the other cloud services. That's correct. Yeah. So it crosses all public clouds. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The product also goes into your data center as well and will support private clouds as well. But um, when, when I started the company, it was primarily AWS, Uh, you know, the vision of all public clouds but the reality was for a number of years in the early foundation of cloud health, all that really mattered was AWS. It took a while for Azure and Google and Alibaba mm-hmm. and other public clouds mm-hmm. to really become meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and tell us a little bit about your background prior to cloud health. 
my background is um, a computer science degree, software developer. I like to tell people I've been doing the same thing since I was 11 years old, which is I've been building <laughs> software products. Um, uh, you know, at 11, I got hooked on an Apple II and just, you know, thought it was the most amazing uh, device I'd ever seen. And, mm-hmm. And, um, and from there, really, I like to think that's all I've done, which is I've been, um, I've been a software developer, I've been a tech lead, I've been an architect, I've been a, a multi-time VP of engineering, multi-time CTO, started two companies along the way. But at its core, it's all about building software products right. that matter to customers. That's really what drives me. And mm-hmm. I'll say, as I got wiser in my career, I learned it's not just about software products that matter to customers. Mm-hmm. It's about building software products that matter to customers with really good people that you want to do it with. Yeah, well, that's really great. And that leads me to another question, because as as you and I both know, so many technical founders want to be the CEO of their company. And you are an exception to that. So tell me a little bit about your thought process and what had you say, you know, I, I need to bring someone in that's actually an experienced CEO and how you found Dan Phillips to become, yeah, so, you know, become your partner. Yeah, that was an interesting story is, um, I I had like my advisors were very careful in the early days to never um, to always say I needed to bring in a business partner. They never suggested I bring in a CEO. And I think they just assumed I would never cede the CEO title to anybody else. Mm. And so it really came down to this formative meeting I had, which is I had um, I put together six or seven advisors that were advising me throughout the whole process of founding Cloud Health. And I would go have coffee with them once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. And and each of them really had a skill set I didn't have, and so uh, they didn't know they didn't know each other for the most part. And they never I never met with them as a group. And I finally brought them together at this key point in the company, and I brought them into um, the venture firm where I was an EIR. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I which, brought which, them let me just interrupt for anybody who's listening who doesn't know that that stands for executive in residence. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so entrepreneur in residence. Yeah. So and I was um, and it was Northwood yeah. Venture Partners in mm-hmm, uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in Boston. And so I brought them together and I said, I have two questions for you tonight. I said, I'm going to brief you on the business. And question number one is, should I continue bootstrapping this business or should I go raise venture capital? And question number two is, do I go get a CEO or am I the CEO? And then we just had an open debate and discussion. And I think the advice came back almost universally of one, uh, you should go raise venture capital because this market's happening now. Yeah. And two is you don't want to be the CEO. So why would you even consider it? And in the truth is, is if you took the Venn diagram of what I'm passionate about mm-hmm. and the Venn diagram of what I needed a CEO to do for cloud health, they almost barely touched. Right. <laughs> they, <laughs> they were diametrically opposed. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's so great that you recognize that, you know, to, to focus on where your genius is, Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and that was um, the key for me was finding a partner I could trust. So yes. you know, it's one of those things where when you're going to cede that level of control to somebody, you, you damn well better make sure that it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's somebody who actually you can trust. And when mm-hmm. doors closed and you're not there to be present for a decision, you know, they're going to make the best decision for customers, for the business and right. for the people in the business. Mm-hmm. And that's how I found Dan. Yeah. And, and what was it about Dan that, you know, that had him have you feeling like this is somebody I can really trust and, and that I can really be a partner with? I, I'll, I'll tell a story I probably shouldn't tell. So <laughs> well, just between that. the two of us, right? Yeah, right. 
we'll make sure we don't tell Dan. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Dan and I had done a previous company together. I was VP of engineering. He was CEO. Right. And uh, the company went through some hard times and ended up acquired by a, um, a big public company. Mm-hmm. And the thing that kept the management team, team together was there was a management carve out where there was a several million dollars that, that, that the board and Dan mm-hmm. would be able to allocate to the executives of that team. And it, when the deal was closed, Dan pulled us together for a Monday morning staff meeting. Right. And he said, this is going to be a short meeting and I only have one agenda item. He said, so what do I do with this carve out? He said, uh, there's two choices before us. He said, choice one is you have me allocated to all of you and you worked hard, you deserve it. And, um, you know, and you all go home with a great payday. Or choice two is we say, you know what? It wasn't just us that got us here. And so we need to share this with all the key talent in the organization. And um, conversation lasted 10 minutes. We chose choice two. And, uh, you know, a lot of people made money that otherwise wouldn't have made money from that deal as a result of his decision. Yeah, that's really great. And speaking of making money, that that leads me to another question. So TechCrunch, uh, it, it's never been publicly announced how much uh, you were acquired for. TechCrunch uh, has it at somewhere north of five million, five hundred, excuse me, million dollars. But you and I had a conversation long ago, and you, you I asked you as I, I ask founders all the time, you know, do you have, do you know what your exit strategy is? Are you going to IPO? Or are you going to sell? What? And, and you're and you said to me, and I believe this is a quote. Well, you know, when you're the leader in the market, you typically IPO. Yes. Right. Uh, of course, it's not a guarantee. It's not at 100 percent. But that's what you said to me. And and um, you were the leader in the market and you did not IPO. <laughs> so what <laughs> what was it about this deal, how it came to you that made sense for you, yeah. for you all to decide to actually have the company be acquired rather than continuing on your journey and going to an, into an IPO? Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, you know, and I think I'd only amend one thing you said, I think a leader in a multi-billion dollar market. Okay. Um, uh, the multi-billion dollar part, I remember, uh, I always, and I still believe that today, Carol, mm-hmm. because I think um, what happened with us was we we started getting approached in 2015 and 16 with uh, opportunities to be acquired. And that's kind of like, as an entrepreneur, that's a gut check of like, what are sure. you, what are you really trying to do? Yeah. And, yeah, you're on the and right they path. were very large tech mm-hmm. companies and um, some of the deals were quite good. And, you know, it was not easy, but we eventually always got to know in these deals. Right. And we reached a point where we realized if we're going to build a public company, we're going to have to do a lot of things that, um, we weren't doing. And so part of that was we went out and we raised a big uh, D round of venture mm-hmm. capital led mm-hmm. by Kleiner Perkins. We, um, we, we brought in a new CEO. So Dan um, helped recruit in um, his replacement. Uh, we needed to do some things on the product side. There were some acquisitions we were going to have to do. And, and so, so there was a lot of hard work of scaling the business and maybe, um, you know, in, in a lot of engineers um, talk about technical debt. There's some organizational debt you build up when you have hyper growth. It's unavoidable, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I think I saw somebody on Twitter say, whatever a company looks like on the outside, it's 10 times worse on the inside. And I think that's true of any hyper growth company. And mm-hmm. we were that hyper growth company with up and to the right charts. Mm-hmm. But what happened is, is at the time we were kind of marching towards an IPO, VMware uh, came in. It's like right time, right message. Love the love the cultural alignment mm-hmm. of the company. Like the synergy of a lot of the things I needed to go out and acquire companies for were sitting there in terms of intellectual property inside VMware. Mm-hmm. 
And so it just all aligned and, um, and, and got me to a point I realized like, if there is a deal to, to, to take, this is the deal to take because the, the alignment is so good. Um, but yeah, I think that's how I got there. It was a combination mm-hmm. of all of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, so speaking of culture, that's, you know, when you, when you look at when you started building the company, um, I always found looking at it from an outsider close to a lot of people over there found you all to have a really fantastic culture at cloud health. Did you dance it down and say, you know, Hey, what kind of culture do we want to build and how do we go about doing that? It's funny. We really didn't. The culture in many ways, people talk about the, the, the culture is, you know, how you behave, what you permit, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was basically just, if you look at the culture, it was almost a synthesis of Dan and I, and Dan was a tremendous culture builder. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had more skill in, uh, like kind of synthesizing that DNA, but you look at like kind of the obsession over customers, the transparency, the mm-hmm. collaboration, mm-hmm. you know, the, um, the, 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 investment in our people, like these were all tenants that represented kind of how Dan and I got together in our, our, you know, respective mm-hmm. careers. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of manifested themselves into our culture. It was only later we codified it and when right. we codified it. I looked at it. I was like, that's me. That's Dan. That's Dan and I. And, you know, so it really became who we were. And then it became who our employees, we, we hired people in our image and then they reinforced. And then right. in some case, cases adapted that culture to make it better. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the people you brought into the company, you must uh, remember this, just, you know, were, were, uh, you know, were people who really helped shape and, uh, yeah. you know, own that culture. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm, I had a question I was going to ask you and I just lost it. Well, it'll, it'll, it'll come back to me. Uh, is, is there anything in, oh, I know what it was. If it, it, looking back, so you founded the company officially, was that in late 2012 or, or I, I'm trying to uh, Yeah, it was, um, it was um, uh, early to uh, late, like uh, mid 2012. Mid 2012. Okay. Fantastic. And cause you and I were then introduced, it was sometime in 2013. Yeah. And um, if you look at it, you know, and then you sold the company, I mean, really six years after you kind of started it, which is pretty impressive. Right. For, yes. for that much, you know, for that much money. And if you look back over that six-year period, where would you say from a, a culture standpoint, from a talent strategy standpoint, you know, where where were your mistakes? And, and what did you learn from those? And, and what did you have to do differently to, to oh, I thought fix you said it? Was, I thought you said this was a 45-minute podcast. Yeah, you, right. You hours <laughs> <your mistakes. laughs> Um, no, I, I think um, we got a lot of things right. So, uh, but but of the mistakes we made mm-hmm. is um, in some cases, we just didn't invest in scale where we should have invested in scale. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those, one of those really difficult decisions as an entrepreneur, which yeah. is you don't want to prematurely scale mm-hmm. because you end up making investments that, that often are wasted. That's right. But you also don't want to be too late in scaling because you you incur you know organizational debt mm-hmm. As, mm-hmm. as a result of that. And so I think that's just one of those things where it's a bit of an art. And I don't know that any two situations, like I don't think I, I can look back with hindsight and know everything we should have done uh, correctly. If I replayed that movie again, I probably would make many of the same mistakes, but I wish we'd invested more in scaling. And so there was a point in the company where the hyperscaling had started, had gone along enough where we knew it was actually, uh, you know, it it was going to be a train ride, you know, moving really fast for a long Mm -hmm. period of time. Mm -hmm. And that was the point to really make the investments. And it would have slowed us down as a business. 
you know, to, to make the investments, you know, systematize things, put the right processes mm-hmm. in place. Mm-hmm. And we did it in some places and we didn't do it in other places. And so where we did it, we were able to adapt and grow and scale those as mm-hmm. we went from, you know, a company that, you know, was less than 20 people to eventually was over 500 people. Right. right. And, uh, uh, you know, but where we didn't make those investments, we, we certainly paid for them. So when you look at, um, how did you go about traditionally finding your, your prospects? Was this outreach? Was it, you know, what was, you know, outbound versus inbound, right? Marketing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, initially when you're building a new product category, uh, nobody cares about you. You can have a website, you can push out your brand as much as you want. It does not matter. No one's going to find you because you're building a new product category for a problem that the vast majority of the market Mm -hmm. misunderstands or doesn't, doesn't care about. Right. And so we had to go find every prospect in the early days. I I would say our first hundred customers, uh, we had to go find the people who fit the profile that we were looking for and then convince them that like talk to them about the problem that we knew they had and then convince them that we had the solution for the problem. Mm-hmm. And then there's a point, you know, that was the beginning of the business. Like after we got to product market fit, we reached a point where then we switched to scaling up the education of the broader market. So we started mm-hmm. teaching people what the market was all about so that we could do more one to end. And it wasn't, you know, uh, you know, one-on-one with each prospective right. customer. And then branding came later. But it was an evolution, which is it's, you know, it's, it was a street fight to get the first customers because, you know, you really have to get uh, very targeted. And it's, uh, I always tell entrepreneurs when you're in that early phase, especially when you're in the pre-product market phase, mm-hmm. there's this great um, uh, five criteria that, that, that are, are presented by a um, Silicon Valley professor and entrepreneur from the Silicon Valley called mm-hmm. Stephen Blank. Okay. And he calls it the early evangelist. And it's, it's, it, you're an early evangelist. You're, you're like a customer who will adopt a product early in a particular mm. market if you meet these five criteria. And sure. Like off the cuff, it's like you, you have a problem. You know you have a problem. You um, uh, are actively looking for a solution to the problem. You've cobbled together pieces and parts of a solution because you care so much about that problem. Mm-hmm. And you uh, have a budget that if there was a solution to this, you would spend right. money on solving right. it. I always, I always push entrepreneurs to that definition because mm-hmm. you've got to like, when you're in that early phase, it's, it's the, the to-do list has to be exactly right. You have right. to be talking to the right people. You mm-hmm. can't waste time on conversations with people who will tell you nice things, but at the end of the day, they're really not people who are going to grow your product in your business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's great that you said that because I, I, I so, you know, you so often, and of course, everything you just said is not news to me, and it's, I'm sure not news to you either at this point. You know, we've been doing this long enough that, you know, there's certain things that a founder has to have if they're going to even have a chance in hell of being a success, right? And I, I think so often people talk about, you know, so an entrepreneur will come up with like, oh, I've got this great idea for a product. Now let's go find a solution. You know, let's go find somebody who needs that instead of looking for the problems first, which is what you did, right? When you had this epiphany, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Yes. And then building a platform that would then solve that problem. That's right. Yeah. How often do you, you know, I know you're doing some entrepreneurial work in, in Boston and I want you to tell me about that a little bit more, some of the work that you've been doing, but how often do you bump into a founder who says, God, I've got this really great idea. I want to figure out if it can be sold. 
rather than the right way, again, which I think is the more effective way is finding a problem that needs a solution to it. Yeah, it's I, I would say many entrepreneurs are building feature companies is what they've done is they've yeah. come up with a better mousetrap mm-hmm. and then they want the world to know about the better mousetrap. Yeah. And, yeah. and I always tell people and, 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 you know, it's become popular to talk about pivoting. You know, mm-hmm. you, you you fail fast, you pivot. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing that people don't talk about pivoting is it's really hard and it's emotionally painful yes. and it costs money it's and expensive. it costs time. And mm-hmm. it's just it's a very expensive proposition. So I, I like to tell people the better path is telescoping, which is start with a big market in a mm-hmm. big problem space mm-hmm. and then telescope your way down to the specific problem that you actually want to solve. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, everything's narrowing and you're not pivoting and you're not shifting directions fundamentally and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, taking the emotional cost in the, in, in you know, the, the lost time. And instead what you're doing is you're just honing, you're getting more refined and clearer on what it is you're targeting. And so, uh, but I don't see that that often. Like I think most people today start with an idea for a product and then try to go figure out how they can build a business around that idea. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked earlier about, uh, you know, your your advisors and so on uh, uh, saying, you know, your this market's going to explode. You need to go out and get venture capital. And, you know, I talked to a lot of founders and so many of them are bootstrapping. And I always ask the following question. Well, when determining are you going to continue bootstrapping or, you know, taking an, an A round, for example, can you get from point A to point B in the same period of time? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, if you're going to bootstrap and it's going to take you a year longer, how much are you going to lose? Are you going to be able to get where you want to be? Is somebody else going to beat you there? Yeah. Um, and, and and I think oftentimes the founders I talk to that are still bootstrapping is the fear of... the wrong kind of interjection from their institutional partners. Right. Yes. Well, I mean, that. that how is did you handle dirty, that? Yeah. I mean, that is like the dirty little secret of venture mm-hmm. capital is, is the moment you take that money, you give up a substantial amount of control. That's over right. Your business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to be ready for that. And, and to be honest, you also give up sleep because the moment you take money, you now feel that obligation to right. return that to money. Lose it. Multiple. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so I think um, for, for us, it was um, the way I looked at it was I didn't really have a choice. If the one of, one of the challenges that I think people don't talk about enough is the importance of luck and timing when it comes to startups. Mm-hmm. So many people talk about, you know, they glorify the entrepreneur as though the entrepreneur is brilliant and they figured everything out and they mm-hmm. built this wonderful business. And at, at its core, there's many things like you need a good idea, you need good people, you need good execution, yeah. but you need a whole hell of a lot of luck. And mm-hmm. a whole hell of a lot of luck, mm-hmm. I think, starts with market timing. And so if you if you miss the market timing window for a particular idea, you have a really substantial difference of what your company could be. If you hit the height of the market timing, mm-hmm. you could have a fantastic exit. And if you hit the bottom, you could have a failure. And, and I always go back to... The idea for Cloud Health for me was 2010. I tried to start the business. I tried to go out and talk to investors in 2010. And they all told me this was a really, really bad idea. Really? Uh, I kid you not. And, I did not and my know joke, that. Yeah, and my joke I, I tell Carol is, is I like to tell the, the bookend of the joke is to say, when I finally in 2012 decided they're wrong, I'm going to start this business, I went back out to investors and they told me that it was 
just a bad idea. And I thought, this is great progress from really, really bad. <laughs> <Yeah, right. laughs> it's a bad idea. So I think when it comes, when it comes down to taking money, you, there's a market window. If you yeah, miss sure. that market window, you're you're going to fundamentally change the trajectory of your company. And mm-hmm. so uh, if you forego raising money at the right time or raise money too early, you just, you got to be careful and you've got to be very confident that you're going to fit in the window for mm-hmm. what it is that you're building. So you took, it took many rounds, you know, you referred to a D. I, did you go as far as an E round? I can't remember. No, no, we, we ended at D and okay. um, in the D was, uh, you know, we, we had the D I think for less than a year at the time mm-hmm, that the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it was a little more than a year at the time the acquisition occurred. Well, and, but weren't investors, I think when you were just about before you took the C round, I was in Boston and uh, Dan and I were having dinner and, and, and he had mentioned to me that, you know, he had had to cancel the night before and we rescheduled. And he said, yeah, we've got, you know, we've got all these meetings because, you know, people want to give us a C round. And, and <laughs> was the experience for you is that, that you were making such great progress that these, these venture capitalists were like throwing money at you <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> rather than you having to beg for it. That's yeah, the it, other question I asked founders, you know, are you begging for it or are they throwing money at you? Because I mean, I believe, and you're going to confirm or deny this, that if they're giving, if they're like saying, please, we want to invest, you have a better, you know, you get a better valuation on, on, on what you own. Yes. Yes. So, so the market today, by the way, is so different from the market that, that Dan and I were raising money in, which so is, it's, it, it's crazy over-rotated today mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of the, the valuations are so much higher. The mm-hmm. amount of revenue you need to be able to justify rounds is so much lower. But, um, you know, the, the, the time that we raised, the uh, laws of gravity still applied. So, uh, so when we raised our A round, we were begging, just to be perfectly frank, which is mm-hmm. no one wanted to invest in cloud health for the A round. And, uh, and we got turned down by virtually everyone in Boston, and they all knew us. And wow. uh, they were still turning us down. And so we finally found two firms that, that were willing to split the deal. The B round was interesting, which was the B round uh, was one of those ones where it didn't look like it was going to happen. And it looked like everyone was skeptical and didn't see the promise of the business. And within six months, that flipped to five term sheets and everyone making competitive (laughs) offers. And so it's just one of those things where you have to have the metrics, you know, the further you go in your business, you know, at the beginning, it's just, um, it's vision and hope is what your, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, investors are, are really putting their money, vision, hope, and people is Mm -hmm. what investors are putting their, their money behind. But later it's metrics and, you know, are you actually performing the way that you should? And, and our metrics were good. So once we got the business past product market fit, and it was a struggle to get the product market fit, Mm -hmm. but once we hit product market fit, we had the up and to the right numbers that you know every venture investor wants to have across their portfolio companies, mm-hmm. and it became much easier. But, but it was one of those things where I always found it funny. There's like a bit of a herd mentality in raising venture capital, which is once you get one term sheet, you're probably going to get four or five or six term sheets. So right. uh, it's hard to get the one, but once right. you get the first, everybody wants in on that deal. Well, right, and you know that's what I've talked about in my business. You know, it, is is to not follow the herd, right? So, you know, I, I I'm sure it works. It works in both their favor and against them when having that herd mentality. Yes, right, yes. because it's the same thing as having groupthink. You know, if you don't have people who are willing to challenge your ideas and your thoughts, well, you know, how are you ever going to possibly come up with the the problems that you might have? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and I, I believe it's that same way. I mean, it, 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 and it could work in, in, 
from a standpoint of, yeah, 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 we heard you've been begging for money. Sorry, not interested. Yeah. <laughs> so the herd mentality can go the other way as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. That's why for me, the I center myself always uh, on almost every topic with with what's right for the customer. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if you do the right thing for the customer, the odds are you're That's doing right. the right thing for the business. You're doing yep. the right thing for the people in the That's business. Right. And everything kind kind of aligns, and so yeah. I, I always in situations like that with entrepreneurs today in this this really frothy market that we're in, I just always try to remind them like do the right thing for the customer. That's right, and the rest happen. will come. Yes, good I, things I, will happen in good times and yep. probably in bad times too. Yep, yep, yeah. I I I mean I I couldn't agree more with that. I it's it's you know too many people think okay how do I make you know zillions of dollars? What what do I need to do to do that? And I'm and I'm thinking well really to your point right. If you're if the if you're solving a problem that needs to be solved and your customer is the most important thing to your company, all the rest will come into place. Right, right. Yes. You know, we 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 just don't I feel like, and I don't want to get off too far on a tangent on this, but we live in a world now that is just take, 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 take. Yeah, yeah. What can it's, you do for me rather than what can I do for you? Yeah. So Which this is a will be a hard Really, this will be a hard segue, Carol, but but same topic, which is I look at this whole conversation around remote work right now. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to me, it's like everyone's talking about what does the employee need? What like what satisfies them? And I think Mm -hmm. I would just suggest to any executive in in making a decision here is start with what is the right type of work for your customers, that's right? Great. And, you know, and whatever is the right answer for your customers, that's what your business should do. Mm-hmm. And, and that'll help you now. And it'll help you when a recession hits and, and uh, you know, different rules may apply then, but, but you can actually be stable and stay the course mm-hmm. if everything you do is, you know, I used to call it at Cloud Health, I used to say, we subsume all opinions at the altar of the customer. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, and I would always remind people of that because at the end of the day, we may have three different directions we want to go, but one services the customer better than all the others. Mm-hmm. And that's almost certainly the one that we need to be choosing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's also, so I'm going to, I'm going to segue back from that because you all, when you, when you guys built this company, um, you were adamant. Everyone lived in Boston. <laughs> Everybody was in the office. Yes. So th- this is going to sound a little bit like Monday morning quarterbacking, but can you place yourself, you know, if you were still in business in, at cloud health now, what you would have done? I mean, how oh, that would have how that would have altered the company? Where you were yeah. adamant about everybody being in that office, and and I mean, it was and how long it took to even open a little tiny satellite office out on the west coast? Yes, you yeah. know, when Thespina moved out there and and some of your other people, right? I mean, I think we did that that one right for our era, which mm-hmm. is you know we were adamant. So so I uh, I had done my previous company prior to Cloud Health was all remote, but remote in the way people see it today, which is I had an engineer in Vancouver and one in Colorado and mm-hmm. one in Virginia. You know, my whole team was all over yeah. the globe. Yeah. And and what I saw about that was it was tremendous for hiring. Like mm-hmm. my ability to hire top talent was was first rate. But and we brought everyone back on a regular back a basis back to corporate so that mm-hmm. they, you know we had an opportunity to bond and get to know each other personally. Right. But we lost a lot in culture and innovation. And, uh, and they, they were things that were not, uh, you know, sure, the technologies have changed, but we had the equivalent technologies we have today back sure. then, you know, and uh, it, we lost something there. And so when I started Cloud Health, I was the person who was adamant around, I needed to keep this thing together because 
uh, by having proximity, we had an opportunity to really nail the culture and then nail the, um, the innovation. Mm -hmm. And if you look, one of the brilliant things we didn't plan that happened is we seeded those additional offices with people from Boston. So, you know, our, right. our London office was started by somebody from Boston. Our mm -hmm. San Francisco mm -hmm. office was started by somebody from Boston. And it's just like they ended up going around the globe and building offices that were in the image of the Boston yeah. offices. So, so eventually good. we had to open up and be global and hiring yeah. lots of places. Yeah. But the fact that we were able to like take it from the same, you know, starter dough for sourdough bread, mm -hmm. in, you, know, in, you know, I think enabled us to actually maintain a consistency mm -hmm. of great culture as mm -hmm. we scale. You know, and that is such a really important distinction you're making. Right. The, the people, it wasn't like you just said, oh, let's go find somebody in London or let's go find somebody, you know, in the Bay Area. That's I, I I didn't actually realize that in some of these other offices. And that's so important. And I think that's a that's something that anybody listening to this really should should take to heart. Yes, it's hard to build culture in one place. That's right. It's virtually impossible to build it in multiple places. Yeah. And so if you can. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um. So what are you up to these days? So, well, so actually, let me, let me step back a second. So uh, you get acquired by VMware and, you know, you personally had a two and a half year uh, contract to stay with them. I think pretty much everybody else had what, a two year contract? Oh, I, I think, I don't really know. I think it was case by case, depending. It on was, case. okay. Yeah, some of the people. Yeah, I mean, I had a it. special situation, I'll admit. Um, I had a special situation just as, uh, uh, as founder, I, I had like a different commitment than everybody else. Right. Okay. So, you know, you had a two and a half year commitment and what had you leave and not stay? Well, I have to say, uh, I enjoyed, I actually enjoyed VMware, which is, mm -hmm. I found, uh, uh, if you don't know VMware well, it's, um, it's kind of like an engineering center culture. Yeah. It's um, very decentralized in kind of uh, how it manages. So it doesn't feel as much like a big company as mm -hmm. some other big companies. So I actually, and I enjoy the people. Uh, it, you know, so I actually found a lot of good things in VMware, mm -hmm. but I think what happened for me is I had, um, when Massachusetts shut down with the pandemic, mm -hmm. I, uh, moved to my vacation house on Cape Cod mm -hmm. and, uh, in like, we're like 30 miles out on Cape Cod. So it's like, ah, out in the middle out of nowhere, yeah. you know, somewhat isolating. Mm -hmm. And I just had a lot of time to think. And I, I started to come back to realize that if there was a mission statement for who I am, it's it's what I told you, which is I, I you know, my mission statement is to build software products mm -hmm. that matter to customers with people I want to do it with, right? Mm -hmm. And when I started to realize that, I started to realize I really need to go build another business. And I'm not going to build another business in this current role. So I, I gave VMware six months of notice. So, sure. you know, I resigned last November. Mm -hmm. I wrapped up in May, um, mm -hmm. hired my replacement and did a nice clean transition. And I'm in this mode of um, I'm living downtown Boston. I'm taking some time off. I'm doing some investments in um, uh, mm -hmm. local companies here. I'm spending a lot of time advising uh, other entrepreneurs, particularly young entrepreneurs yes. coming up in Boston. Yeah. Well, my goal would be to go start another business and yeah. maybe, um, maybe, maybe start something bigger than cloud health this next mm -hmm. time. That's great. I mean, that's something that you told me years ago, you know, what are you going to do? I don't know, start another company at some point. Do you have <laughs> any um, ideas around what that looks like that you're willing to divulge? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have two ideas at mm -hmm. the highest level. I would say one is in the developer productivity space and okay. one is in the um, uh, uh, IT governance space that, um, 
they interest me. I don't know, you know, the, the, the challenge for me is I've got to get far enough down where I can see that I want to go spend the next eight years of my life yeah. on this property. Does it have right? legs? And, yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I want a multi-billion dollar market. I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to build something small. I'd like the mm-hmm. opportunity. Like if I build something small, it's because I failed. I don't want to build something small because the market wasn't there to support right. building something big. And, uh, you know, so I, it, for me, it comes down to, I've got to, I, I would use the analogy of it's like, um, you know, you, you're trying to make a, if you're a musician and you're trying to make a, you know, fantastic album for your fans, that's one thing. But if you're trying to do it to, you know, make another fantastic album, that's another thing. I just want to go back to the one-on-one relationship with the customer and say, mm-hmm. you have pain. I understand it. Um, I know how to solve it. Let's work together and collaborate and see mm-hmm. if we can make something happen here. And so so I'll probably, you know, shift into trying to make that happen in the fall and we'll see where it takes me. I like, I honestly, I've never, never not woken up every day with a clear mission of what I do. And I have to tell you, starting in May, it was incredibly <laughs> anxiety producing. Yeah, right. That's great. <laughs> I can't just retire. I'm too young. <laughs> <laughs> My wife does not want me around the house that much. <laughs> so, um, so if you look at those those two markets that that you you know and again at a very high level that you're that you're thinking about what are those you know what do those spaces look like you know and again you haven't drilled down on it enough yet but kind of looking at a you know from the viewpoint from space right um what what's the competition like in those markets do you even know that yet yeah no i don't in in part of it is is um, for me to find, so I'm looking for one of the great things I did with cloud health and I can't take credit for is uh, I picked a market that was a big, fast growing market. And it was one of those situations where rising tide lifts all boats. And so if I stayed true to the customer and really paid attention to them, there was a good chance I was going to build a substantial business in that space because I was in a great transformative market. Mm -hmm. So I need to find another market that that's going to have a 10 year run. And to do that, it's not an existing market. If you and I know what the market is, then it's too late. Uh, so does everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm more focused on problems that are big, hard problems that people are struggling with that people mm-hmm. don't think you can solve with technology now. Wow. That's really interesting because I think that's what we all do. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I think we are both uh, old enough. Uh, I think you probably are too to remember the pet rock, right? Um, <laughs> you know who came up with this ridiculous idea and made you know jillions of dollars. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think that's the biggest, the biggest issue any entrepreneur has, right? Is you know what what is the pr- a problem that really needs solving right now? Yeah, I, I mean, Steve Jobs figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's um, um those unicorns don't come along every day. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of it is you need to spend time thinking about problems that people have not assumed can be solved. And uh yeah. and in many ways, that's what I did with cloud health, which is I knew the market was going to be at the intersection of IT management mm-hmm. and uh in, in cloud computing. Mm-hmm. But you know, when I talk to somebody about the idea of I'm going to, um, you know, optimize costs and spend and, you know, for, for companies, like 
no one ever thought that was a market. So right, and it's um, so sexy. <laughs> I know exactly. That's what I think. Woo! <laughs> right. I still. Well, think that's just what I want to do. Said nobody ever. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, so, so what is what are you spending your personal time doing these days? So I've been living downtown now. Yeah, it's part of taking time off. Like I've been enjoying Boston. You know, yeah. you know, Boston. Boston is not fully back. I would say, which mm-hmm. is during the day, it feels um, somewhat quiet, and then during night, the nightlife is all back. So it's kind of like this. Yeah, it's a very unusual kind of um, you know two headed dragon going yeah, on here. Yeah. But uh, but so, I, so I'm spending a lot of time. Uh, my wife and I are just really enjoying all the different things in Boston, the mm-hmm. museums and different places you can go and culture. And mm-hmm. I go to Red Sox games, and you know, uh, so enjoying that. But we also have uh, li- live on Cape Cod, so um, so I do a lot of boating and fishing and mm-hmm. um, just enjoying family time down there. So it's kind of like I'm right now. I'm living the best of both worlds and this bubble will pop as soon as I start deciding I'm going to go build another business. So, mm-hmm. so I'm enjoying it while it's still here. Mm-hmm. Have you, have you even, uh, again, this may be really premature started thinking about, uh, you know, who do I want to work with when I build that? Or are you just way too far away from knowing? I, I would say I'm too far. Away. And part, part of this is, is uh, this is wisdom that you will understand, but probably most people overlook is, is, I couldn't pick it until I figure out what the needs of the customer. Are. Yeah. So, right. so when when I get the when I get get to the point where I really understand the the problem space, I understand what the customer needs, I understand what type of business needs to get built, then I think I'll have a better sense of the people I need to surround myself with. Mm-hmm. But I think if I put the people first before I really delved into that problem, I think it'll change the problem in ways mm-hmm. that may uh, impact my ability to. To, to build the business I want to build. So, mm-hmm. but that said, I, I work with obviously a tremendous group of people at Cloud Health. I'm mm-hmm. sure some, and they've all scattered to the winds and they're all off doing really mm-hmm. interesting things, but but I uh, wouldn't mind working with a few of those people again. That that, that doesn't surprise me at all. So, <laughs> so I guess one of the last questions I want to ask you about, about being a founder is when I talk to people about startups, I, I tend to say, you know, there's certain things you need to look at when you're considering going to work for a startup, right? One is who's the executive team? Who are the founders? You know, have they done this before? Now, of course, having done this before and been successful like you were with Cloud Health is not a guarantee you'll be successful again. Right. Um, Although you have a greater probability because you did, I believe you really did all the things right. You did so many things well. Um, And then just because somebody's never founded a company doesn't mean they won't be successful, even though the probability is higher that they won't be. <laughs> yes. So how do you, at looking toward your next startup, um, give yourself a greater probability of success, do you think? And is it anything different than you've already told me? Yeah, I think, you know, your customer focus and, you know, solving that problem that and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think one of the things I'm very aware of, and I think this is a mistake many people make, is they have a success and then they assume that the next thing they do, they can take the playbook from yep. the previous success and apply it to whatever new venture yeah. they're on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a tremendous mistake that mm-hmm. people make and that what you need to do is you need to take the experiences and the lessons, mm-hmm. but the playbook is always new. You build a new playbook every single time. And so I think that's 
one of the things I'm very aware of, and I'll, uh, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll call myself on it if I see, see myself doing it, but I think it's really important, uh, you know, and, and like I said, if you, if you, if you subsume everything into the, at the altar of the customer, at the end of the day, if the customer is different, the business needs to be different. The culture right. needs to be different. The people mm-hmm. in some cases will need to be different. So you just have to be willing to make that type of change and not try to take too much from your previous venture and yeah. uh, assume you're going to be successful. So, so I, you know, I'm, I'm humbled enough to know that I wasn't the reason cloud health was successful. I had great customers. Right. I right. had great people we hired. I had uh, great timing in the market. Uh, so I don't pretend to think that I'm going to go start something and it has some guaranteed path mm-hmm. to success. So, well, and and and, and being you know, doing a startup is exhausting, as you know, right? Um, you know, and what kind of hours were you working? Did you did you even ever see your wife or your kids? <laughs> oh yeah, it was that was very difficult. I will confess. People so, don't so realize we, that. Yeah, people don't. Yeah, I had my my youngest was in um, I think fifth grade and my oldest was in sixth grade when I started the company, mm-hmm. and. Uh, in, in, you know, my wife and I, the way we work together, we made it all work for, mm-hmm. for the family. So, mm-hmm. so like I used to always like to say, I, I remember reading a blog post from a entrepreneur I know, and he was talking about how he was done with missing his kids' birthdays and, yeah. and their, their athletic games. And mm-hmm. I thought to myself, I never missed one of those. Like I, you know, like I always made that time, like mm-hmm. no matter how many hours I might be working at 80, 90 hour work week, but I still would go to my son's baseball yeah. game. Right. So you just have to have boundaries. You have to figure out what works for you. But at the end of the day, anyone who goes into this, assuming that it's not an enormous amount of effort, it takes a huge toll on you, which is I I was working seven days a week for probably the better part of the first um, two, three years of the business. And I remember vacation for me, my first vacation I took was, it probably was, um, probably would have been uh, summer of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I remember I went to Cape Cod for a week. And, it, and what I did is I worked 40 hours that week instead <laughs> of my, my normal hours. And, you know, and that's, that's what it takes to build a successful business. Right. That's right. I, I, I don't know any other way to do it, which is great accomplishments come from yeah. great effort. Yeah. And I, in fact, I exactly just had that conversation with somebody I interviewed, I think about a week and a half ago, same thing. You know, he said it practically ruined his personal life. And, and you know, he then he he put some structures in place so that it would it, and it really transformed how he did things. Yes. Um, so talking a little bit about the energy and the effort that founders put in. I remember I talked to Eric one day and he says, I have one more in me, Carol. I can do this one more time and then and I can't do it again. So, you know, or is that where you are? I have one more in me. I can do this one more time and I'm, I'm out. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I will do this as long as I possibly can. I always remember, so one of my early investors, Bob DeVoli. So Bob, um, uh, Bob, I remember we were at our closing dinner for our first mm-hmm. round of venture capital we raised. And Bob had this conversation that just stuck with me. And he said, I was talking to a friend who just was telling me that he retired. And he's like, I don't even understand that. He said, you know, do you think like Michelangelo just suddenly said, well, you know, time to put the paintbrushes down. I'm, I'm, I'm done painting. I'm, I'm retiring. He's like, if right. you're doing something that you're passionate about, why would you ever retire? Right. And when he said that, I thought like that was the best, um, you know, story narrative for explaining how mm-hmm. I feel, which is I, I started what I, I, I'm doing today when I was 11 years old. I don't think I'm doing anything different than when I was 11. I'm just doing it with a little more structural and formalization and I actually make money from it. Right. Right. But, uh, but I, I probably would be doing this if you didn't pay me. So why would I ever want to stop yeah. doing it? 
So, so I don't know, I'll have to find different ways to channel it based on, you know, where I'm at at different points in my life, but, mm-hmm. but I can't imagine doing something else. It's a yeah. privilege to actually be building products in technology mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, and I recognize it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if somebody listening to this says, God, this guy is super cool. I want to be part of his next business. <laughs> Or somebody listening to this is an entrepreneur that says, boy, this is a guy I'd love to, to get to know and pick his brain. You know, how do they get a hold of you? So I publish both my phone number and my email address at my website, joeconsella.me. So anybody okay. who goes there can uh, can can reach out and contact me. Mm-hmm. I um, I am completely open to uh, random introductions and mm-hmm. meeting new people. And I'm in particularly now, I'm in this phase where, and I did this before I, like when I was in the early stages of cloud, uh, starting cloud health, mm-hmm. is I got to this point where I just opened myself up to the world and, you know, with different input and ideas coming in and in a way that I normally wouldn't, because once you, once you have a mission, you kind of close things down and you, you kind of exclude the rest of the world and just go focus. And I'm in this, you know, mode where I'm interested to listen, hear, learn, teach. Um, so it's kind of an interesting time. So it's a good time to get a hold of me if anyone wants to talk. Good. So joeconsella.me. And for those who don't know how to spell Kinsella, it's K-I-N-S-E-L-L-A. You got it. Um, well, gosh, Joe, this has been such a delight. Uh, as always, I always thoroughly enjoy our conversations. And I really, really want to thank you for uh, taking the time to, to, to you know, tell people about you and what you built and, you know, your successes, challenges, and so on and so forth. So I really appreciate it. I know. I really appreciate it too, Carol. And the story you and I didn't tell is the tremendous impact you had in building oh. health. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, today, if you go on LinkedIn and look at some of the people that you developed for cloud yeah. health yeah. and where they are today, yeah. they've had uh, tremendous success. Yeah, they do. They have. And, you know, and, and I appreciate hearing that because, of course, this podcast isn't about me. <laughs> so, but thank you. It does not go unnoticed. All right, Joe. It's been great talking with you. You as well. Thank uh-huh. you. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.